Welcome, everyone, through all time and space to an all-new episode of Weebs on the Weekends, a podcast where we break down the anime news highlights of the week and give a retrospective look at anime that premiered 10 years ago. Today's episode will be covering the news from the fourth week of July 2020 and give our thoughts on the second episode of the 2010 OVA anime Gundam Unicorn. My name is Jay Johnson. I'm a part-time weeb and full-time English language sensei. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Sam Martinez, part-time weeb and full-time automail mechanic. How are you doing today, Sam? Hola, Professor Johnson. Como você está hoje? Okay, so hola. That kind of gives it away, but let me think. What specific <laughs> Spanish country could that be from? Hmm, I think I'm going to go Colombian. Nope. You're close enough to Spanish, but it's it's uh it's its stepsister. It's Portuguese. Ah, uh, Portuguese, of course, the other Spanish language of Brazil. I should have known. So close, <laughs> but yes, no points for me. So now it's I don't I need Okay, so next time I'm going to recount my record of how many I think I've only gotten two right out of this is episode thirteen, so I think oh, I've only gotten. No, no, you, you've you've gotten a couple because I went back. You got uh when I did Korean, um, you did you you got a couple others too. You got Arabic, so I want to say probably four or five so far. We need to go back and do the count, but you 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 got a okay. pretty good number of them. Okay, I'll make sure to take tally of that. But how am I doing? I'm doing very well. It's full, uh, fully in the summer anime season, so all episode threes have premiered basically. So next episode we'll be having our three episode tests and talking about mm-hmm. our top five anime that we've been keeping track of so far and seeing if they pass so far, if we're going to continue them or drop them off like a hot potato. But overall, <laughs> I'm doing pretty well. Have myself in a deep tower of god hole and i do not mind burying myself and not getting sleep or eating so i will keep reading that potentially there's over 400 chapters or issues so at the current rate that i'm going i might finish by the next (laughs) recording so let's see how that goes but sam how are you doing oh my goodness i'm doing pretty good not as much as you i uh i'm caught up on my three episode test anime like like you've mentioned and i also realized yesterday too that a parade ramen got its episode four so i was really hyped with that because of all that they went on in that episode and i honestly was just missing it uh that anime i wanted to uh let that anime finish so I'm excited that it's coming back, and I'm looking forward to it next week as well. And, oh, I also had some uh, bomb-ass ramen earlier in the week. I went to a place in Orlando called Supa Saiyan, which is a, it was a restaurant that's uh, DBZ-themed, and they had these noodles. Oh, I, I showed you the pictures of it. Uh, like, I had a normal uh, noodle bowl, and one of my friends that was there had gotten a Kaoken size bowl which was like three times the size of a normal bowl and they even have like an ultra instinct bowl that's like five times that size so hopefully next time i'll be ready to do to go ultra instinct we'll see i'll probably have to fast for like two days or something so i can eat it all in one sitting yeah that makes sense i mean a lot of those kind of stylish theme restaurants have opened up all over the place i mean japan is kind of famous for that having 
uh, anime-themed cafes and restaurants and bars. So glad it's spreading its roots out into other countries. But yeah, I would definitely go for the Ultra Instinct next time because the bowl that I saw for the Kaioken was incredible because you have the yes. basic ramen bowl for like a single serving and then you have the uh, basically a whole bowl that you can basically put over your head to protect yourself <laughs> bowl for the Kaioken. And then I'm assuming yes. the... The Ultra Instinct one is the one that we usually see Goku eating from, which is like just a giant, I don't know, you could probably like put a baby in it. So, yeah, I would definitely, <laughs> I would definitely yes. be interested to see that. He, 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 uh, he eats the uh, the baby bowl. That's what he uses, uh, the bowl that you use to wash the babies with. Oh, and another thing, too, with the Kaioken bowl, like they give you a wooden ladle so that you can uh, soup the broth out of. It's It's hilarious. <laughs> no, that's, that's considerate of them because broth is such an important part of ramen so it's oh, always yeah. the broth which if you're at a good ramen shop like it's either 12 or 24 hours like pre-cooked and soaked in the um, uh, boiled over like bones or meats to get the like the marrow umami mm -hmm. out of it and then the toppings and then the noodles so your basic structure for your uh, ramen but anyways to yep. segue into the news <laughs> let's go to the news uh, yeah <laughs> don't have any ramen based news but just to start off with some uh, anime news highlights of the week it's been a very not slow week there's been a lot of stories coming out this week but just a lot of low traffic or low interest stories a lot of okay. manga adaptations uh coming to like um the spotlights, some things with the, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Xbox showcase happened this week. So we have a lot of news about video game and anime yeah. adaptations that are getting um, their video game debut with the Xbox. And they're making more of a move to, you know, a wider audience, essentially. But there oh, is video okay. game news that I did want to talk about because this is something you love, uh, Sam. The first news story for this week the video game Fate Extra Re Records celebrates its 10-year anniversary with a remake. Oh, so, that'd be cool. Yeah, so this game originally came out on the PSP 10 years ago. Hey, look at that. Mm -hmm. Like our <laughs> podcast, we talk about stuff that's 10 years old. But yeah, yeah. so Studio Moon, <laughs> Studio Moon um, basically handles the whole Fate Stay Night franchise. They do the animation. They do the... Uh, video games, it's all in, it's done in-house because they want to kind of keep the same aesthetic throughout games. Even when you see uh, Type Moon characters in other properties, they always have a consultant to make sure that the aesthetic is, you know, consistent because the Fate Stay universe is so huge. But yeah. yes, this video game that came out uh, 10 years ago is getting a remake as a celebratory kind of um, celebration gift because it's very much a... I guess, lesser-known property or lesser-known part of the Fate Stay Nights universes because this takes place in the Extraverse, uh, which is kind of a adjacent in-step sci-fi continuity with the main um, Fate Stay Night series. And there was a loose adaptation of the game in 2018 called Fate Extra Last Encore which is currently streaming on 
Netflix. So right now, that's the first news story. Any thoughts, Sam? I'm trying to remember the with the Fate Stay Encore because I did hear about that. Um, I think it came around the time because when that came out, there was another Fate Stay that came out around the same time. And I remember one of them was good and the other one not so much. Um, because one of them took place in a school. I, I need to go back and uh, look into it. But because uh, the name Encore does look uh, does sound familiar, but uh, the franchise has to have uh, or at least like that su- uh, sub franchise or that subsection of the franchise has to have some some form of love for them to put out a ten year anniversary edition of the game, and I'm I'm assuming that it's all HDified and things of that nature. Yes. Yeah, so Type Moon has yet to release any news about its. Uh, publication date or which platforms it'll be on, but this was just a announcement earlier this week saying that's how they're going to celebrate. I mean, like you said, okay. Sam, the fandom for Fate Stay Night has been like just enormous. It's a large voice in the anime industry with mm-hmm. a lot of their video games gaining popularity. I know Fate Stay Grand Order or Fate yep. Stay Order, it's Grand Order. It's has Grand a lot Order. of gotcha game. Grand Order, thank you. Uh, have gotcha games that net so much money for Type Moon and keeps their properties growing since there's like dozens and dozens of installations of the Fate Stay Night series. So that's the first news story. It's not too bad. Now oh, yeah, into good one. let's put these next three together because they're all streaming news. So uh, okay. let's I'm gonna say them all. Boom, 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 and then we can talk about them. So the first streaming uh, piece of news I wanted to talk about is that Agretzko season three will premiere on Netflix. <laughs> oh, I'm th- okay, <laughs> keep going, August, keep going. <laughs> on August 27th. So Agretzko season three premiering on Netflix, August 27th. Goblin Slayer film Goblin's Crown will release on Crunchyroll streaming on July 28th. So we're only a few days out of that. And lastly, uh, Wit Studios Grand Pretender, which was on my watch list for the summer season, Grand Pretender will start mm-hmm. streaming on Netflix US on August 20th. So those are the three streaming news I just clumped together. So which one catches your interest, Sam? Uh, they're all so good. Um, okay, when did you say Gretzko was coming out? You said she was in uh, July as well, or no? Yes, yeah, so Agretzko Season 3 will premiere on August 20, 27th. Oh, August okay. It's going to be in August. Okay. Uh, like, I really uh, enjoyed Agretzko, I guess because when it came out, it came out at a good time where I can relate to it because it follows a 20-something-year-old person who's semi-new to the workforce, semi in it, like in that in-between stage where she's been in, in it for a little bit, but she's still sort of green. And so I can relate to her character a bit more. And it's honestly uh, the, the way that they do the slice of life and the characters and the type of animals they are. It's very punny. And with Goblin Slayer, too, because you said the movie was going to be streaming on Crunchyroll. Would this be the first time that... So 
has has the movie been in theaters already or is this its first exposure to the public via Crunchyroll? Yes, so the original premiere of The Goblin's Crown was back in February 1st in theaters okay. in Japan. And of course it was a follow-up to the 2018 anime, but Crunchyroll does have the rights for publication in like streaming publishing rights. Yeah. So they do stream the anime itself as well as they're going to debut the movie with the home release of the film. So like it ships in DVD and VOD on the 29th of July, where uh, I think this is part of, oh, there is a fandom Crunchyroll kind of partnership to premiere it on the 28th. So those two things okay. are going hand in hand, the physical release and the uh, streaming of it on Crunchyroll. Okay. And that, that, that was one thing that I was interested uh, because I didn't know it when Crunchyroll was debuting it because of the world that we live in due to the uh, certain C word, I wasn't sure whether or not uh, Goblin Slayer's uh, release was going to be via streaming first and not in theaters. It, it seems like it was fortunate enough to have seen a theater release before going, before streaming online. And uh, I, the reason why like I brought that up was because I didn't know if Crunchyroll was going to try to take more of a Netflix uh, perspective. And because I think Netflix is still putting out movies despite of what's going on. And so like they, they're able to continue to thrive uh, movie wise. So I didn't know if Crunchyroll was doing the same thing, but I'm still, but back to Goblin Slayer, I'm still excited for it. And I would say I'm more excited for Goblin Slayer than Agretzko, mainly because it's closer in proximity to uh, today's date. But I'm I'm really excited for the both of them, and with uh, the Great Pretender, hopefully I'll be able to. What, do we know if it was dubbed yet, or it's still going to be subbed? Right now, it will have a dub release after its second core. So right now, it's scheduled for 23 episodes. The first 14 have already premiered on Netflix Japan, and then it's going to. Um, Fuji Television for broadcasting, so it's definitely going from an OVA to an anime in its production run. So the dub okay. is planned to happen after it comes to the Netflix US uh, after August twentieth. Okay, so it, w it won't be too bad. I guess it will be a little bit like uh, Doro Hey Doro, where it was put on Netflix with a sub and later on they go back and they put the dub out there too uh so exactly no I'm, so, I'm, I'm yeah the thing that's yeah really caught my attention about goblin slayer like you said sam it premiered way not way in advance but on february 1st that was before the mm -hmm. lockdown in japan happened so it did have a short run in theaters before theaters got closed due to you know government mandates and the thing about mm -hmm. Goblin Slayer, well, I don't want to talk about the controversial aspect of the show. The thing that really I want to talk about is that it's based on a dark fantasy novel. So it went from okay. novel to manga adaptation in 2016 and then immediately got approved for a first season in 2018. So I'm wondering now with everything that went on with it, do you think we'll see a season two 
probably next year. Do you think that's going to happen, Sam? Dude, I want it to happen so bad. Like, because it, it, it made it seem as though there was going to be more to the story, essentially, because at the end of the anime, the character known as the Goblin Slayer, like he has grown to a certain point to where, because when, when you first meet him, he is sort of putting himself in a box. And at the end of the show, he's grown to the point to where he's breaking himself away from his stagnation. And he's able to make wholesome connections with other people. And it made it seem as though that they could continue that story with him and his connections and to see where that would go. I would like for there to be another season, but with the way that it ended, it could definitely just be uh, a standalone season if it wanted to. But I would have to see what happened in the movie to see if uh, the story is going to progress even further. For sure, that makes sense. I was more thinking of, Mm -hmm. has it... Well, that narratively, you can, of course, continue a story, no matter how definitive the ending is. I mean, there's always a after the story, but it was more uh, of I mean, a thing I mean, of, Yeah, go, go on. More of a thing of, did all the controversy, like, stop its production if it was already planned for a season two? So I was just curious if you thought that because of everything that was negatively, negatively said about the series, do you think that will be hindrance to its getting a second season so you mentioned controversy i wasn't really if if, would you mind explain at least just 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 briefly touching on it a little bit because i can only i'm I'm not entirely sure what you're talking about like i can think that maybe because of how it did certain scenes uh sort of a uh a, a deconstruction on uh certain scenes with certain tropes but i'm not entirely sure what controversy you're uh speaking about because at least whoever i talk to in regards to goblin slayer they know that it's pretty hard but they still enjoy it just the same as i do yeah so it's just again on first episode viewing of something that i think a lot of the public was just in the camp of not anime is for kids discussion it was just more of a uh jarring a setup that wasn't really received well in people's opinion that it was too graphic for the premise setup. So it was more of a breaking of the contract that the series set up. So the controversy was more of a, is it glorifying um, the violence in the show for purposes of entertainment? Is that mm-hmm. part of being entertained if someone is, you know, sexually brutalized, murdered, like where does that fit inside of media, especially when it isn't really clear or explicit up front with the rating that that's what's going to happen? Because when you go from a distinction of PG to R, that's a wide margin, but what inside of R is actually R-rated? And that's what the Goblin Slayer kind of discussion was revolved around. It wasn't controversial, per se, I guess, but it was more of a discussion topic that had a very wide margin of uh, not theoretical, but more uh, practical use of what media does for people. Okay. So I guess in terms of that, like it it had a certain rating and then 
uh, off the first episode, it seemed to have gone above and beyond the rating that it said it had. And, and, and is is exactly. that the gist of it? Okay. Yeah, exactly. So, mm, because I would I would put it in the same vein as Game of Thrones. I know a reason why I uh, didn't get into Game of Thrones for the longest was because at first, like it seemed like it, again, like as you said, like it glorified uh, certain uh, things, whereas um, uh, some people who uh, are uh, huge fans of uh, Game of Thrones or uh, things of that nature, they would say how it's quote unquote more historically accurate or how it's more real and things like that. And it, whenever you, and after uh, getting past that, like there is at least in the beginning of game of Thrones there, it, w- it was a good story. It's just that because of all the uh, over sexualization and the abuse of uh, certain characters and the violence, it was off putting and just, just going back to what you said, like it's, there's a bit of a balance act where it's like, how much is too much to get your point across and, and you know how much of this is just you know essentially just murder porn in a sense and so it's definitely something that the uh the people who are in charge of rating it's definitely a a, a discussion that they uh, need to talk about because uh people need to be aware of what a show is uh, going to be uh, tackling, what it's going to be addressing, especially if they want to um, not necessarily manage, but at least uh, to be more involved in what they take in, what their family takes in, what their children takes in off the TV. It's, it's, it's definitely a, a, a discussion that needs to be had. Yeah, I agree. And I guess the last point that I just want to talk about with the streaming news is that that yeah. the Great Pretender has released more, you know, information about the series and the production because of the delayed uh, release to the public. So the thing that came out recently this week was a mentioning of the people behind it, like the executive producers, the composers, mm-hmm. the director. So just a rundown of the direct and all those like titles that came out and who they're talking about is that okay. uh, so Great Pretender, of course, is a series about two Japanese con men that get basically swindled by a mob con man, confidence man, and they have mm-hmm. to start working for the uh, mafia in Japan and pulling um, grifts or tricks for them to get out of debt. And the director of the a series is the same director that did 21 Days, so he has definitely um, credibility in the understanding like crime-centric dramas. Yeah. The character designer did Fully Cooley, worked on Fully Cooley and Evangelion. The scriptwriter uh, worked on Parasite: The Maxim, and of course, the I mentioned this last time. Why it caught my attention is that the music director did the music for Vinland Saga last year. So oh, if you're looking at okay. a very prestige property that's getting released this summer, it's definitely a great pretender. Too bad that it's been pushed essentially to fall. But anyways, 
Moving on to our last news story, and like for every episode going forward, it is a mech-related news story. Hey. So our last news story, <laughs> last news story of the day episode is that the arcade game Mobile Suit Gundam Extreme versus Max Boost On <laughs> releases <laughs> on PlayStation Four on July thirtieth. So the Extreme versus series has been going on since 2012, yeah. and mm-hmm. this is the ninth installment in the series that was released in Japanese arcades in 2016. So now it's seeing a console release this um, coming up this week, and the game is featuring over 185 mobile suits from 36 titles in a 2v2 action fighter game. And of course, this is being produced or created by Bandai Namco Entertainment, which handles all of the Gundam properties Mm -hmm. and their uh, video game uh, installments. So, Sam, have you ever played a Gundam game or specifically this Gundam game franchise? I've played the Dynasty Warriors uh, Gundam franchise. And I'm trying to remember which one I have. I think I have the three or the four. And it was it was it was very fun. I haven't really uh, played uh, Dynasty War. It was my first um, experience playing a Dynasty Warriors game, and I have seen some gameplay for some of the others. Not the Extreme Versus, but I do remember seeing the commercials for it. There was one Extreme Versus. I think it was the first or the second one where they were introducing a Gundam, and essentially his weapon was a guitar. Like he would rock it out, and like he could shoot like lasers from it and stuff like that. It it, it was it was pretty funny, but um no, like I uh, I'm trying to think. There was another yeah. So it was uh uh Dynasty Warriors Gundam, and there was another Gundam game that came out that I really wanted to play. I think it came out the same time as Unicorn or. Iron Blooded Orphans. So it was it was one of those two, because it the controls for that game it was more like the contemporary Dragon Ball Z games that we would see, where um, the it's sort of like a third person and you can uh, fly and uh, wherever you go uh, wherever you want to go and it's more of an open world type setup and uh, yeah so. Uh, that that's that's been my uh, experiences uh, playing any uh, Gundam video games. Have you had any? Uh, have you had a chance to play any yourself or no? I can't recall any. I just remember Custom Robo, which was on the GameCube, yes. and that was kind of my Gundam fix kind of game because I was definitely <laughs> adjacently interested in Gundam at that time. Of course, because of Gundam Wing, which we already talked about. And yeah. I was looking for that, you know, a ex- way to express my growing love for Mecca. <laughs> but, yeah, I haven't any experience with the Extreme series or much of the Gundam. Having even tried the Dynasty Warrior game, which was uh, very much received a lot of critically, critical acclaim at the time. Yeah. And it's just a solid game all around. But a lot of these games that are coming out from arcade games, they're getting their debut on a lot of home consoles and the Nintendo Switch. And Nintendo Switch is just kind of that perfect gaming system to transfer over arcade games into, you know, people's hands and get kind mm-hmm. of addicted to 
oh, I played this game, and when I go to Japan, I can go look for an arcade and play it in real life. So it's kind of a, a symbiotic relationship that's being built between these like two disparate kind of ways of gaming, arcades and handheld devices. But that is our last news story for today. And as always, that is a great way to transition into talking about <laughs> Gundam Unicorn, which we, for this episode, we're covering the second episode titled Second Coming of Char, the Red Comet. And this premiered on November 2nd, 2010. And this is the last Gundam Unicorn episode that premiered in 2010. And you know, it premiered in November, so we're right under the mm-hmm. 10th year anniversary. But, you know, we'll look at the other way on that, especially since we'll be reviewing this series as it's released year, not yearly, but it's released. The next episode, I was believe, is in 2014, and that's why we're kind yeah. we're looking at Gundam Unicorn, because it has such a weird production schedule and release dates, so... Yeah, Sam, take it away. You're the man of the hour again. <laughs> All right, so uh, just just wanted to uh, clarify some things because I realized that I did make some mistakes in uh, the previous episode and at least setting up the uh, history between Char and the uh, royal family of the uh, Zeon movement. And I just wanted to clarify that up a little bit and maybe to give a brief uh, synopsis of uh, episode one, because we did talk about that in, uh, in depth, but uh, at least to set up the uh, stage for episode two, I feel as though like a, just a quick recap for episode one will do good. And because I'll be talking about Shar and his lineage, it also leads to a question that I sort of want to throw uh, your way, Jay. So... Uh, without further ado, just a little bit of a crash course with uh, Shar. As I said before, his father was Zeon Zoom Daikun. Yeah, that 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 entire phrase was his full name. So Zeon was not a uh, not a title. That that's his actual God-given name. And essentially, Zeon was a philosopher, a philosopher who began a movement known as Contalism, which was a viewpoint that the Earth was sacred. And mankind was always meant to leave it by living in space and that the space colonies uh, should have autonomy from those who live on Earth. And essentially, uh, Zeon goes on lectures and has talks about a new type of uh, human that he calls new types, basically saying that it's the next evolution for mankind and it will be brought on by, uh, by going into space by making him, quote, a man of profound sensitivity and insight and a far greater awareness of the vastness of time and space, end quote. Essentially, uh, so, so uh, and uh, this movement uh, for independence became so popular among the space noids that in the colony that he lived in, Side 3, they formed the principality known as the Republic of Zeon. Because you can tell that this guy was very humble. And not long after the formation of this new republic, Zeon had suddenly died. And his his, uh, successor, quote-unquote, was named to be a person by the name of Daegwen Zabi. 
and Zabi is Minerva Lau Zabi's grandfather. So, uh, as a result of his father's death, Casval, which is Baby Shar, and his uh, little sister, they went into hiding and they were adopted by uh, another family in secret in fear of their lives because it was believed that Zabi had assassinated his father, uh, Zeon. Uh, you fast forward, Castval becomes a little older and he takes up the alias known as Shar to gain the trust of the Zabi family in order to seek revenge for his father. And his resolve for revenge had solidified to the point to where he had his best friend killed. And his best friend was a son of uh, Zabi. And, but the thing is, he's also been shown to have mercy on some people in the Zabi family. For instance, Minerva, he had the chance of meeting her when she was a baby. And he had the... Uh, opportunity to kill her however he let her live and there's speculation as to why he had let her live uh, uh, depending on uh, whether or not he uh, didn't think that she should pay for the crimes of her grandfather but he ended up killing his best friend for that reason so it's sort of just like up in the air uh, on that but I, I just wanted to bring that to the forefront just to, you know, show the complexities and the dr drama between Shar and the Zabi family, because that does come up in episode two, as, as you do know, Jay. And uh, just real quick before I hit on the recap for episode one, uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, Daikun's of philosophy idea of the new type uh s someone such as yourself who just came out of a uh quote-unquote trip of an enlightenment do you believe that a mass exodus in space would shift the human race to be more empathetic towards one another like what uh yes. Zeon had uh decided you think so oh no i don't because okay it's a it's a philosophy that is very much in the sense it's heavy handed in its explanation that it's kind of hard to get behind. It's definitely yeah. elaborated enough that you get that it's a plot point in the series, but yeah. of its application and real world, um, I guess, pathology is what he's talking about that space exploration fundamentally changes the human mind and what's the body's capable of. Of course, NASA has explored that in like small exercises with uh, with the astronauts on like the International Space Station, like the effects of zero gravity on the human body and how yeah. plants and other life forms uh, experience zero gravity and what that actually does. So along the lines of that, I understand that there is a real world parallel or correlation, but how it's worked in or explained in the show is very much a non-committal to me of or non-committants that it's not something that i would think is uh, factual okay so you do think that going to space it would shift uh the way in which we think and or at least 
how we interact with one another, do you think that it would be a a positive change, a negative change, or just a different um or just just a different vessel for the problems that we currently have? Well, the facts that it's trying to say is that humans yeah. have been so evolutionary geared to being on Earth and being uh, exposed to certain factors, be it like sunlight and the social aspects of being a communal society or uh, species. And that mm -hmm. changing in space is somewhat of a hypothetical right now. So yeah. I don't think it will change pathology in the human mind, but it's an interesting thing to hypothesize about. And that's what the show really does best is just draws out a what if statement for the whole series, I imagine, because I'm only up one to episode two, but episode two does a lot of heavy lifting in that because not much happens yeah. in this episode, but there are a lot of plot points, but we'll talk about that later. But yeah, yeah. for right now, the new type discussion is very much a tangent, it feels. Oh, uh, okay, okay. All right. Uh, so then what, one last question before uh, we move on then. Um, in your experience, have you ever seen an environmental factor in your life that has caused you to become more empathetic towards uh, your fellow man? Like what uh, uh, Zeon suggests, you know, saying that space is the catalyst for becoming more empathetic. Have you, in your experience, ever experienced an environmental factor that made you feel that way towards anybody else or no? It is one of those things of a psychological response to fear and danger, you know, along mm -hmm. the lines of flight versus f flight versus fight. And I've only experienced that during extreme disasters, like an earthquake and what I've experienced about how people essentially, yeah. ex uh, they have these moments of outbursts of, you know, not euphoria, but of empathetic response where, oh, I see that this person's in danger. I need to help them. You see that really rarely in situations like you hear it in situations where like mothers will lift up cars to get their babies from under that. So yeah. it's a lot of limitations of psychology being, being able to override physicality. So along those lines, I understand the idea again, like space is that yeah. kind of threat. They do a lot of realistic approaches to space travel that I want to talk about more because it's my favorite part of this episode in particular. Okay. And that idea that space is basically a new cave, essentially, or a new darkness. If you look at like Plato's uh, Plato Plato's cave, that it's something that changes the person because of their experience to it, that they have to overcome and adapt or they won't evolve. So yeah. that's way I think that's what the show's leaning towards that philosophy. So I do get that again. And I do think it's going to affect people in that kind of way. Okay. No, no, that, that's fair enough. And I, I, I do uh, see what you mean. Like at first, like uh, that fight or flight uh, system, it would definitely make, make you change, but it would just be interesting to see how space would be like how a person uh, in space were 
that that was their normal whether or not that person will be different from somebody who lives on the earth in terms of um psychologically you know not saying that like having them it's uh suddenly shift into space whether like that that's going to be different but you know just like comparing and contrasting the two that grew up in those same environments you know whether or not it's a nature versus nurture uh thing but i digress so quick recap on uh unicorn just to set the events up uh for episode two so uh the beginning of episode one we see the assassination of the prime minister of the earth federation at the beginning of the show in a mansion known as laplace and flash forward we follow an anaheim electronic student known as benager links he's attending school in side seven which is a colony that's known for their mining and while at school, he notices or rather feels somebody in peril and who needs help. And it happens to be a young woman who calls herself Audrey Byrne. After in saving her life, they end up in a mansion for the Vis Foundation, which is the company that's rumored to manipulate both the Earth Federation and Anaheim Electronics in the shadows. There, Benager learns that Audrey is someone important in the Xeon Remnants. And she wants to halt an exchange between the Vist Foundation and Neo Zeon that could lead to war. During Audrey's meeting, a fight breaks out between Neo Zeon and the Earth Federation's Londo Bell inside of the colony. During the fray, the Vist Foundation CEO gave Banajer control of a MOVA suit to, in order to save Audrey. As Banajer goes into battle, the mobile suit transforms from a solid white mobile suit with a horn into that of a mobile suit that resembles a Gundam. The suit is called the Gundam Unicorn, the Beast of Possibilities. And let's see. Again, like with that episode, just talks a little bit. Of, uh, it just introduces the new type and uh, how the definition of what Xeon uh, wanted the new type to be, which was somebody who is purely empathetic and can uh, reach out and communicate with somebody uh, else without having to use speech or anything else like that. Essentially, talk with their heart and how that definition became more of a militaristic one where they essentially take these quote-unquote new types and they force them into becoming pilots or uh, war machines, so to speak. So, uh, again, just to give a little bit of a backdrop, so now we'll go into the recap for Episode 2, The Second Coming of Shar. And in this episode, we see Banajar's Gundam is, over is able to overpower the Kshatriya, which is the quad-wing mobile suit in battle. Once the Xeon captain escapes from the colony, the Kshatriya is ordered to retreat. As soon as the Gundam depowers, it is then taken by the Londo Bell ship that rescued Audrey, as well as two other of Benajer's classmates. While on the ship, the crew tries to find out Unicorn's secrets while trying to get to the moon without being followed by the Xeon forces seeking to reclaim the unicorn. A course for Anaheim Electronics HQ on the moon is suggested by Alberto Vist, 
uh, the representative from the VIS Foundation who told the Federation about the trade-off between the VIS Foundation and Xeon to begin with. He is also the same person who killed the CEO of the VIS Foundation in the previous episode. And it turns out that that was his father that he killed. Just to add a little bit of human drama there. So while the Londo Bell uh, faculty was questioning Benazir about the unicorn and how he came into its possession, the Federation ship was attacked by the Neo-Zeon captain known as Full Frontal. During the attack, the Federation soldiers realized that Audrey is actually the last princess of Zeon known as Maneva Lao Zabi. While trying to use Audrey as a bargaining chip the Zeon, with the Zeon forces, Benazir leaves in the Unicorn to fight Full Frontal in order so that they can escape. During the fight, Benazir is bested and is then kidnapped by the Zeon forces and is taken to their headquarters. While in, custody, uh, while in Zeon custody, Benazir speaks not only to Full Frontal, uh, but also to the civilians in that colony receiving exposure to the Xeon mindset and their condition. After which, Benazir gets a secret message from the Federation saying that there will be an attempt, a rescue attempt for him and the Unicorn. And while that's ha happening simultaneously, an Earth Federation pilot known as Ensign Riddy free Audrey from custody and plans it says that he plans on taking her to earth so that is just a quick recap of the episode so uh jay uh just wanted to uh uh get your thoughts what were your thoughts on uh the characters uh in the beginning of the episode realizing that banager was in a gundam because like for the first five minutes it, everybody was just like oh that's a gundam that's a gundam that's a gundam what what were your thoughts on that about their reaction to that it's a Gundam? Yeah. <laughs> okay, I don't have any thoughts about that. Okay, no, th th that's fine. I, I didn't know if um, it, it was just like one of those uh, weird things because like I, I was just uh, re-watching it and, I was, and it, it just hit me, you know, like somebody who wasn't deep in the Gundam lore like because they essentially just gush uh, for like, Five, like I said, about five minutes saying it's like, oh no, it's a Gundam, it's a Gundam, it's a Gundam. Basically, just trying to make it a big deal. So, I guess like the best equivalent for those who aren't in the know, it's as though you are, uh, you're a villain and you're going to fight the Justice League and then you find out that they have a Kryptonian on their side. Or you're in the Dragon Ball Z universe, you're fighting some people and then you find out that you're going to go up against a Saiyan. So essentially, like that's the type of status that a Gundam or a Gundam type mobile suit has in this universe, that it just stands above and beyond all the other mobile suits that are in the area. So essentially, like if a Gundam is on the scene, that means that it's about people are about to get wrecked. But um, just to uh, uh, switch gears a little bit more, so then uh. Overall, with the episode, um, I, I guess I wanted to uh, get your opinion on some of the new characters uh, that were introduced. Do you uh, find them any better or any worse than the previous characters uh, or the previous ensemble that 
you have already become acquainted with? Do you think that they complemented uh, those characters in a different light? Were there any characters that you saw that you were more interested than others? There is the uh, full frontal, which I am. That is such an interesting name to go with. <laughs> based on because he's full in your face. <laughs> no, go on. It is. It is a novel adaptation, so I mean that's one of the things I'm assuming they kept in because that would yeah. be an interesting thing if they changed that to full frontal, versus. Uh, not choosing not to change it. So I very much enjoyed the scene between him and Lynx of their meeting yeah. where a lot of the physicality that goes on with Lynx is very interesting because when he sits down on a couch, he like sinks a little bit. And I just noticed that of um, his body language that when he goes to drink tea, he's kind of, he doesn't voice the opinion that they might be poisoning him, but he like checks it out and like, his hand yeah. is trembling, so I very much enjoyed like the physicality and the animation there. But the mm -hmm. thing that really caught my interest of that exchange between those two was that uh, full frontal <laughs> frontal removed his mask, and because yeah. Link said something along the lines of "I can't shake the hand of someone I don't know," and I found that very interesting in a character building way. In a character if, what way? in a character building way okay. where there is this sense of nobility <laughs> because there is a stoolie that does accompany frontal in that scene that actually ends up like throwing links down to the ground and stepping on them because yeah. he feels that he's perceiving some kind of aggression towards, you know, his Lord and, um, and that kind of, uh, royalty way of the servant is protective of their Lord. So yeah. I very much like that dynamic, that was going on in that meeting, but along the lines of how Lynx reacts to just seeing his face. And it's kind of that recognizing that he's human. And a lot of yeah. mobile suit shows go into how war kind of erases people. They just become tools of war. So I found mm -hmm. that very appealing in that moment of this kid that's been forced to pilot this war machine is seeing a more experienced um, soldier for the first time and seeing that, oh, there's still a person. And it's funny that that's the introduction to, you know, our main protagonist and antagonist, if Maria, Morita, 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 Morita. Morita is not going to be his main antagonist, but Frontal is going to be. So they already had their destined meeting essentially, but it was very much a civil thing if it wasn't for that stoolie. I mean, they had their. <laughs> mobile suit battle in the beginning and yeah. i wouldn't say that the gundam unicorn strictly lost that battle because he was double teamed essentially um because he was fighting um full frontal and morita came out yeah, of nowhere and yeah. double teamed them to take him out so it wasn't really a fair fight because yeah. those were two very advanced mobile suits going against the gundam and a very new pilot so well, that it, being it, their it, first it, introduction yeah. mm -hmm. That being their first introduction, yeah. and then having this meeting where now Lynx is in their custody, and now he wants to yeah. show Lynx the life of, you know, essentially his people and see what the situation is, and have uh, Marita be his basically bodyguard or escort. So it was a very interesting setup and payoff in that way. 
No, it, uh, just to um, uh, jump off of that a little bit, and, well, at least to touch back on the battle, like, a little bit of that battle was unfair for uh, Full Frontal, too, because halfway went during exchange between Benajer, you have that pilot, Ensign Riddy, uh, in his mobile suit, was uh, trying to back up Benajer, too. So there was a time where Full Frontal was fighting a two-on-one, and um, then Benajer uh, was fighting a two-on-one. But I would still say that, like like you said, it was still unfair for Benajer because he's still a new pilot. But he was the one that had the Luffy attitude of, oh, that's the guy we need to beat? I'll go and beat him up for us. But um, I wanted to say that it, it was interesting that you brought up the point that the... Uh, soldiers of war, uh, as you mentioned, that it humanized him uh, w- when he took off the mask, because in that exchange that he has with Marita in the church, um, uh, how she makes the point saying that uh, Benazir is now entangled in the situation, and that he has to realize that when he gets into his mobile suit, he is a pilot. He is one with his machine. You know, in, in a sense that to go to war, you have to shed your humanity a bit to do what you believe is right, even though, you know, you are a, a human first. So it, it, it was it was just very interesting that you had brought that point up. And is it uh, safe to assume that that was your uh, favorite uh, dialogue or your favorite uh, character interaction uh, in, in this episode? Well, it was my favorite character interaction, but it wasn't my favorite moment. Okay. So, uh, because I was going to ask you about your favorite character interaction, and since you said that, I I would go ahead and give my favorite character interaction. I would say that, uh, because uh, Benajer and Full Frontal, that uh, character interaction, it it was very good, but my uh, favorite has got to be with... um, Audrey and the uh, Federation uh, soldiers that were essentially trying to use her as a bargaining chip against Full Frontal. Just all the character interactions in that. I mean, uh, you have Full Frontal giving them the time limit to figure out what they want to do, and uh, they, they and then you have the Federation uh, soldiers essentially keeping the communications line open, trying to uh, 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 essentially uh, flex on Char, trying to keep uh, control of the situation. But then you have uh, Maneva that's basically saying, oh, you fools, like, if you really know the person that you're dealing with, you know that he doesn't care about me. It's like, you know, like, my whole people, like, they're more ruthless than you are. You know, stuff like that. Basically trying to flex back. And it was just a good character interaction. And I timed it. Uh, Char did. I mean, sorry, not Char, but Full Frontal. He did not give them the full three minutes that he said that he would. He gave them two minutes and eleven seconds, and I just find that funny that he that he gave them uh, that long to try and figure things out. And again, like that 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 was just uh, my favorite character interaction because uh, that that scene really did a lot for me in terms of uh, boosting Audrey because. As you mentioned before in the previous episode, she was sort of a damsel in distress. But with this scene, 
she was more than that, even though she was in a situation that was not for her benefit, she was still very much in control of the situation. She had this regal, this dignified uh, sense about her. And it, I, I really did appreciate that. It showed that uh, she's not just a figurehead, that she is just not a, another pretty face, but she is very thoughtful and very insightful about her position and she knows the risks and she's willing to take them so that she can uh so that she can meet the uh goals that she set out to achieve but um what what was, what was your favorite uh since, since since you uh mentioned that uh the interaction between full frontal and Bernager what was your favorite character in your interaction, but it was not your favorite. Um, did you say it was not, not your favorite part? Uh, my favorite moment. Yeah. 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 Favorite moment. So what was your favorite moment uh, from this episode? Yeah. So it's a very quick moment, maybe like 20 seconds. I didn't time it, but it's a very interesting yeah. moment that you don't very much see in a lot of uh, mechas, but moments in anime in general it's where the captain of the londo bell comes out of a meeting with uh, a lot of politicians or you know yes, uh, decision yes. makers and he steps into the elevator and he has a tantrum and it's very interesting because i served as oh let's not talk about that but it's very interesting to see a composed figure or authority type in a military kind of just have a moment to themselves yeah. where they kind of just vent all of their uh, anguish or anger in a moment because you know a good military leader doesn't vent their emotions or their uh, opinions in public mm -hmm. so it was very interesting to see that moment he even goes about beating the walls of the um beating the, the walls elevator. of the elevator yeah. and mm -hmm. essentially not screaming in full volume, but he does the head down and like kind of restrained screaming and then just starts aired punching. Cause uh, another aspect of the show that I very much liked is how they treat the real world physics of yeah. having a space station. So he's floating in the uh, <laughs> elevator and he's like throwing yeah. punches and hitting the, elevator walls but as soon as the elevator stops and he makes another swing he his body his motion his weight flies it falls through yeah to laws and lands into the hallway and then he has to adjust his uniform in front of his soldiers and then they come to attention so that was just a very interesting moment to stop because it feels like something that would be cut in most animes or yeah um that they just have that moment to kind of just be human. And that's what the show really does well is that they give everybody this nice gray um, morality or an understanding of, Oh, these are not good and bad people. These are just people at war. So they are still people again, kind of continuing that through line with the frontal meeting with links. So that was my favorite moment. And it's funny that you bring him up because I was going to, uh, I have a question about him for you. Because in the end of the, I, I would say like I would compare him a little bit to, uh, Boomy from uh, the Legend of Korra. I, I can't remember. You you mentioned that you did watch the Legend of Korra, correct? Yes, I did. 
Okay. So just a quick parallel. When you first are introduced to Boomy, right, he's on a ship, he's braggadocious, and he's basically the same King Boomy that we've seen in Last Airbender. But with his position, with his acclaim, even though he's just as wild and just as crazy, he has risen to a a high rank or a high um, yeah to, to a high rank in a military organization, and he can still act how he does, meaning that like his feats were um, were uh, uh, nothing to to scoff at, nothing to laugh at. That he was able to get the respect of his um of his men despite his uh attitudes and then like later on in the show they don't really follow through uh with that they sort of make him uh the butt of the joke and things of that nature and it's sort of hard to remember that this character was a war hero or was uh some uh, a high ranking official I would say with uh, the commander of the Lando Bell ship, it's sort of a bit of a reverse in that aspect because in the last episode, we when we have him, when we our first introduction to him, we have him. He's sitting in his chair. He snaps his fingers, and the uh, cannons from the ship fires. Right, essentially showing this guy who's calm, cool, and can control his men without essentially having to say a word. And then we get a little bit more in this episode where we have him it, it, uh, before the fight with Full Frontal, we have him uh, send out his mobile suits and then uh, he tells them to uh, bring them back in because it turns out there was no enemy forces out there. And then you have one of his, uh, yeah, I think it's his second in command, uh, the lady that was outside of the elevator uh, when he had his tantrum. She questions it. She's like, are you sure you want to do that? And, you know, sort of like um, getting a little uppity with her position. And he's like, yeah, go, go ahead and bring them back in. And then when Full Frontal comes out. He's like, send out the mobile suits. And she replies to him, like, you told them to come back. <laughs> you know, essentially uh, saying, like, why didn't you do the thing that I told you to do? And he also had a moment where he's complaining in front of his men on the deck. And his second is like, it says again, it's like, hey, complaining to us is not going to, uh, you know, affect the situation. But then after that, we have that moment in the elevator, you know, where he's throwing his tantrum on his own. So my question to you is, is that just showing that the captain is inept, that he's a little green? Because at least after hearing what you say about his moment in the elevator, it seems like he, it, it seems like, at least like to me, he might be a little bit green, but he's learning to understand what all his uh, at least like to understand his position a little bit more because as i said right after his second had told him you know like just complaining to us it's not going to do anything about the situation that's when we have like that scene where 
he leaves the room and then he goes and he has his tantrum elsewhere. He doesn't blow up in that room with other people that could be his peers or that could be underneath him because, you know, they're all on his ship. So at least like with all that in mind, I wanted to get your thoughts on the portrayal of that character. Like, again, you know, whether or not he's inept or if he's learning uh, or if there's uh, another aspect uh, to him that I might have missed. It's something that, again, I'm just going to keep complimenting the show yeah. that it does well, that it feels very much a continuation of a world already established. And mm-hmm. as I read into the captain's uh, de- demeanor and his actions and mannerisms, which is, again, um, what the show does well is that we as an audience do not understand how long he's been a captain, essentially. Yeah. And along the lines of what goes through a uh, a coping mechanism for military types in that kind mm-hmm. of situation, how many second-in-commands has he gone through, how many crew members has he lost, and a lot of shows lean into that makes the captain – like hard hearted or stone hearted, hard faced yeah. and slow to react to things. But then on the other extreme, there can be the captains that lean into the goofiness of it to be more relaxed and laid back as long as they're second in command is the stern type. So it's something that's a dynamic duo for a leader and the co-leader to have. Mm-hmm. And that's what I saw here that the second in command is basically carrying out the operational functions, but still that allows the captain to be a little bit more laid back and to be essentially the good parent. So oh, in the okay, dynamic yeah. of good parent versus bad parent, you always want to go to the bad parent for advice, but you want to go to the good parent to have fun. And in a yeah. war situation, both of those are needed, especially on a bridge. So along the lines of the captain and the dynamic between his himself and his second hand that yeah. I didn't find that anything jarring. I kind of felt that was very natural to a special forces group, which is basically what the mm. Lando Bell is. He's yeah. essentially operating outside the purview of the government. So what does that really do to a person after, let's say, 20 years of service as a special operative? So it's very refreshing in that way to see a goofy captain not be inept, but just to be laid back and to know how to delegate responsibilities and certain attitudes to have. No, no, no. Like like, like you said, it's – I, I, I like your your uh, your view in it because I appreciate him a little bit more. Like you said, he can be relaxed. He can be laid back because his second, as you said, handles um, the more uh, tactical operations. And when they were in that firefight with Full Frontal, they complemented each other very well. I guess that's a testament to how long they've worked with each other so they know – how what to say to each other when the time is right things of that nature and um at least like they have that mutual respect where you know she can give him a little bit of crap whenever he's slacking off a little bit but you know he doesn't take any mind uh, uh he doesn't pay it any mind because he knows that she's not being that serious about it she you know she's just making a comment on it so and um just, I, I guess, like, um, 
Oh, no, no, because I had already asked you about the characters that stood out, and you mentioned uh, Full Frontal. Were there any other characters that were introduced that stood out just as much as he did? Or he was the main one that stood out for you? He's definitely the main one that stood out along with his lackey. The lackey kind of left more of an impression on me because he was doing Oh, Angelo. Yeah. Angelo, yes. He was doing all the physical, like, emotional responses to whatever Lynx was saying in the moment. There's even this moment when Lynx basically starts the conversation. There's a close-up on Angelo's eyes (laughs) to show that, you know, he's... Uh, angry at whatever he's uh, what Lynx just said as well as how disrespectful he's seeing his not laziness but uh, laid backness with the uh, full frontal but along the lines of other characters I really appreciated that none of the characters designs were very villainous so along along the lines of a war story that there's no clear good guy and bad guy, even though we're essentially following the perspective of the Gundam pilot that doesn't essentially make him good. And that's what kind of the church scene at the end of the episode kind of illustrates is that as a pilot, you are, you know, a weapon. And again, the whole motif of Mecca is that it's not a good thing or bad thing is how it's used. So along the lines of characters, they see, they feel equally realized because they have different yeah. body types. Uh, the body types varies. It's not a just swap the color um, between hair colors. Like the second in command kind of has like puffy lips and a short buzz haircut versus when the captain like removes his cap, you see like he's not essentially balding, but he's he has a lot of unkempt hair under his cap and along the lines of like the crewmen on the bridge, they're all uniquely designed. They all have their moments of dialogue. And again, to that moment with Lynx sitting on the couch, you see a lot of mannerisms that go into each character. I mean, um, Full Frontal does that hip placement <laughs> kind of yeah. pose um, that, you know, pompous people kind of carry. And then even uh, Marida has this dour uh, kind of, uh, shy kind of walk when they're going to the church and it's very she's very not much expressive even though she's very expressive when she's in combat uh showing a lot of emotion there but not in you know personal day-to-day life yeah so i think all the characters are equally interesting in that way okay and uh that that brings me uh to another question with the characters so uh, the characters that you were introdu- introduced to in the previous episode, do you think, uh, uh, are they progressing as you thought they would? Or is there anyone deviating from your previous predictions? Uh, not any deviations so far because there's a little drama between the, uh, well, you're going to tell me his name, but he's the blonde pilot that helps out the princess. Oh, Riddy. Um, yeah, Riddy. I was not expecting his turn to be like that. It's not mm-hmm. so much of a turn for his character, but it was just a very surprising moment for that to kind of come out of essentially nowhere because he does have a strong reaction during that hostage scene um, when he when they broadcast that she's actually the princess. Yeah. You, so that does pay off as setup. 
because he does again in the first episode confuse her oh no sorry this is this episode that he he does a lot of banter with her trying to figure out does she he why does he know uh why does she look so familiar to him and even in the investigation part of learning out her identity they go through like a lot of news footage to find out where she's actually from so like it kind of builds to that that he might go in that direction not that he might be a spy or change sides he's just a good soldier essentially trying to resolve the conflict in his own way okay no 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 like and i would say it's a bit refreshing too because we have with him he's a soldier who has time in the force right and um I'm trying. I'm trying to remember how to say it. Again, like he has he has time uh, in the military. However, like his uh, stance or like his take is very ideal. Uh, excuse me, idealistic. So similar to Benazir's, but not really. And it's just interesting seeing him uh, sort of react to the situations because. I don't think he's seen actual combat before. He he might have, but at least with the way that he's been reacting, like it this may have been like his first conflict that he has been used to. And ha- having it be his first conflict, having his uh commanding officer, somebody who he obviously admired and he uh uh appreciated his advice, having him die on the battlefield before him has definitely impacted him and the fact that he didn't come away from that interaction as bitter as most people normally would have i guess because he had marita to focus his uh emotions on instead but i would say that uh ready is probably uh, what Benazir would have been had Benazir been enlisted in the forces and, you know, had already come to terms with what it's like to be a soldier and what it means to have to take a life on the battlefield. Because you see Benazir break down when Angelo uh, tells him that he had shot somebody on the battlefield. Like, that was when he realized that... Um, It's weird because up until this point, like, he thinks that he realized what it means to be in war, what it means to be involved. But it seems like in that scene, like, that's when it sort of really hits him that he can't be, what's the word, Uh, that that he can't hold himself in such a high regard because in a fight or flight uh, situation, he himself has even uh, taken a life uh, for fear of his own, d- even though he didn't realize that he did. Um, so uh, just uh, to touch on some of the other characters. So the other students that uh, Benazir went to school with, what were their names? Uh, Mikot being the girl and Takia being... The Gundam buff that's uh, basically giving exposition for everybody. What are you? What do you think their reactions are to this entire thing? Do you think it's normal for them to have the reactions that they are having? 
or uh, do you think it was? Uh, do 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 you think that if anybody else would be in their situation, they would act just the same, or were 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 they just not important for you to take uh, take notice of in the episode? Yeah. So again, filling out the yeah dimensions of every character and giving them equal screen time and giving them a moment to actually react to everything is again another strong point of the show that in what she's going through she's very much traumatized and you see her a couple of scenes where she's just balled up and just not responsive uh, she's irresponsive or not unresponsive to what's going on around her and she's using the little pet robot that's uh, Lynx owns who has kind of a uh, therapy pillow, <laughs> essentially, yeah. and as well as the, you know, best friend character being a, essentially he's being a war historian buff, and yeah. that's what he's, he's living essentially, you know, essentially his best life possible along those lines, yeah, of experiencing yeah. something that he's only been a fanboy of. In the first episode, we see him talk about a uh, Zach. Zook uh, that they have in near the academy, and he kind of breaks down. Oh, uh, the, the Zaku? Are you talking about that mobile Zaku, suit? Zaku, thank yeah. you. Yeah, Zaku. Yeah, the Zaku suit that uh, he goes into a spiel about, you know, battle damage and certain how you know pilots can get killed with certain shots, and we see that throughout the episode. So mm-hmm. he is a ex- ex- exposition dump. But yeah. it comes from an earnest place of his character where he's kind of fascinated, like you mentioned at, at the beginning of all the uh, fanboyism about the Gundam and how rare it is. And mm-hmm. um, along the lines of, yes, his best friend is the Gundam pilot. It's kind of one of those things. Like he's being a bro in a lot <laughs> of the presentations of yeah. uh, moments that he's going through. And he definitely sees the attraction that he has with audrey of course as a best friend would so they do get their individual moments to kind of show off their character be it the best Mm -hmm. friend being super chatty and energetic and the girl um, female student kind of closing in because she basically saw her whole class um, liquefied or evaporated in front of her and the one person that she cares about is directly in the center of all of it and he keeps going back into it for a girl that he likes so yeah. all of that comes through in their portrayal no no, no. and um you're right about that it's it's uh just interesting seeing because with uh Mikot, the the girl with the little robot her trope it's uh usually one in gundam where it's the uh, the main hero uh, has a love interest from home or from school where he's at, and he gets thrust into the fray. Then he meets this new love interest, and I would say with all the other ones, I, I would say like her reaction is probably the most typical. What what should be the most typical for somebody in her age group, and you know just being. Uh, she because she hasn't been in a war situation she's just been thrust into it and she's trying to uh decompress and trying to uh take it all in and all that uh on top of the person that she has unrequited uh affection for 
And it seems like any time that she's in the same room with him, he's never really uh, talking to her, that he's that his attention is always elsewhere. And so it seems like, you know, she doesn't really belong in any of the scenarios that she's in. And it seems like there's uh, this frustration that's pending up bit by bit. Uh, for instance, when they uh, try to uh, get her to go out and to look at the Gundam, you know, she's like you said, she's unresponsive. Like they like they she ends up going with them. But off screen, you can uh, tell that they had to goad her into it. They had a. a put in work to try and get her to uh, do anything in that regard. So as uh, uh, since we're still talking about characters, who do you think was the character of the episode for you? Who was the one that stood out the most and had the most impact? I remember you said that uh, Full Frontal uh, stood out, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he was the character um the character that stood out from the episode to you unless it does <laughs> i would say that the character that stood out the most to me was uh marida marida <laughs> sorry i have to keep saying i have to keep saying marida because it keeps reminding <laughs> me to like maria from <laughs> you uh, have to remember so. there's a d in there <laughs> yes Marida. So she has a lot of screen time in this for a 50-minute episode where, yeah. you know, of course she's in the battle situation at the beginning. She comes back in the second bit to capture the unicorn. And then she's the caretaker links to look over him while he's captured. And a lot of the the conversation with her is very impactful because you kind of mm -hmm. see what has the war done essentially and like you said like if links had enrolled in the military he would be more idealistic in his experiences where he is now just uh idealistic in theory he hasn't really yeah. been exposed to war even as a pilot when he gets into the mobile suit he goes right into battle it's not like he's trying to open up communications he's immediately turned on to the prospect of piloting the Gundam because he's of course been given it to him by his father, but yeah. he just readily goes into battle where Maria is on the opposite scale of she's tired of being a soldier. Mm -hmm. And you see that in everything that she says to links of the idea of becoming the machine itself, as you said earlier. And I'm assuming mm -hmm. that this is, going in the direction of he's going to have to kill her or she dies pretty soon and then full fronter becomes the main antagonist so i'm seeing that this is a lot of setup for maybe a tragic death or more of a um, backstory that we haven't seen yet in episode two and i'm very mm -hmm. much excited in that way to see how she develops not develops as a character but as the story uses her to kind of flesh out its themes and motifs no and um it, it, it's, it's funny that you said that because uh, like it made me realize like what she was saying to him because uh when he had spoken to full frontal he asked him you know if he uh piloted a suit and then he gave the same question to marita and marita said you know she only pilots when she has to you know when there's not enough men 
you know, essentially, you know, just saying what you said in that she doesn't want to fight, but she only fights when she has to. Uh, you know, showing that the war is uh, um, taking a lot out on her, and you know, she wants the uh, conflict to resolve as soon as possible, but she will do what needs doing uh, when the time comes. I would say uh, for me, uh, again, I'm, I'm uh, just going to be gushing on Audrey for a little bit because uh, I would say Audrey was the uh, character uh, for the ep- of the episode for me because of all the interactions that she's had, uh, especially the one with, as I said, the one where they try to use her as a bargaining chip. She turned the situation on its head for her favor. And even when she was uh, talking with uh, Ensign Riddy, how uh, in, in the scene after the fight with uh, Full Frontal, she he basically goes into her quarters and tries to shake her up. He tries to vent. And uh, she basically is just... Uh, it, it's, it's just funny because of the experience and uh, the will that she has. She's, it, she, like, he goes on his tirade and goes on his rent, rant, and she essentially just says, are you done? Because, like, what's happening... Because it was just like, are, are you done? Because what you're saying is going to happen is not going to happen. This, that, and the third is going to happen because of who I am, because of what's going on. You need to be more aware, you know, essentially. And... It again, like it, it, it just showed how serious that she took her role, and that it was a little bit different from most of the other uh, princesses in this genre that would take the, on the role. And one thing that I found interesting too was that all the interactions that uh, she's had with uh, other characters, it's from like a regal, in control, dignified standpoint. However, whenever Banajar is in the mix with them, it seems like she's taken aback by what he says. And uh, it's like whatever simple phrase or simple thing that he says, it just cuts her to her core for some reason. And I wanted to get your opinion on that. Uh, why, why do you think that is? Because it is a situation of seeing how innocent he is, essentially, <clears throat> yeah. where he's informed in a idealistic way again he's has a lot of theories about what war is because of course you would have it if the war is going on while you're living but you're kind of protected a lot of ways of how civilians have opinions about military actions or politics where she's a princess and whatever authority she is exercising she does see the effects of that so uh-huh. whatever she hears him say something like optimistic or idealistic, it's a reflection of who she might have been at one point. And yeah. that's why she relates so strongly with him, because it's a mirror that she's changed so much over, you know, however long she's, you know, been in power or has had the power to make changes and mm-hmm. she has to go behind her military or he, she has to go essentially behind the back of the government to ensure that the unicorn doesn't fall into to the hands of you know the people that she essentially serves that she understands that there are 
different thinkings behind people's actions and what Lynx represents is something that she's maybe given up on and that's probably going to be the arc of her character is coming to terms with that. And I, I appreciate you saying that too because it made me uh, realize that uh, again in the scene where she's used as a bargaining chip, uh, Benazir comes onto the bridge and very much like an entitled civilian is uh, trying to uh, chew out all the military people. And he's just saying, it's like, if they just want the damn box, you know, just give it to them. Like, it's a, it's just a box. And then, uh, you know, him coming from his innocent, idealistic standpoint, and then you have uh, that commander that held uh, uh, Maneva or Audrey hostage saying, uh, the reason why we're doing this is so that more people don't die. We don't know the contents of the box. They don't know the contents of the box. What's going to happen if you give them the box and more people are going to die. And like you can't. Are you going to take that responsibility? Are you just going to say to the people that were affected by that, uh, you know, they had loved ones die? It's like I didn't know what was in the box. You know, like that's not a good enough reason. You know, essentially saying that even though like he, uh, like even though uh, he he may even though the situation is very charged and people have died that uh, they are working to uh, prevent more deaths and that you have to um, be you, you have to be flexible to a degree on your standpoint. You can't always be idealistic because not everybody else will have the same views as you in that regard. And uh, it, it, and it, it was just interesting because his back and forth, with the commander, it so reminded me of what you mentioned last episode about, you know, the child soldier. Essentially, uh, the commander was trying to discount uh, Benazir by being on the bridge, saying, you need to get out of here, you're just a kid, you don't know what's going on here. And Benazir uh, talks back to him, he's like, well, Audrey's just a kid too. If, you know, kids shouldn't be here, why are you treating her like a captive? You know, it's like, why is, uh, why is she, you know, why is she here, if, if, you know, if I'm a kid? Essentially, you know, just like hearkening uh, uh, back to the point that, you know, like with war, how ugly it can be and how and essentially in, uh, in, in war overall, you can use children as pawns. And, you know, that's definitely something that, you know, should be jarring enough to you to make you want to rethink things rather than to continue to... Uh, feed uh, the war machine, so to speak. So uh, another question that I wanted to ask you was what scene do you believe had the uh, best or the most um, uh, complimentary uh, music uh, throughout this episode? Along the lines of music, I mean, of course, the end song has or sorry, not end song, but the theme song of this episode is called Everlasting by Keeley, where, you know, every episode has its own unique theme song. And of course, at the end, we should rank them because they definitely have a lot of variety so far. I mean, if you look at episode one to episode two, they're very distinct in what they are trying to convey in their musicality for the episode. They're kind of uniquely compare, or they're, they're uniquely kind of um, connected to one another. But along the lines of music that 
it's just a lot of it's complementary. Like it supports what's going on to each scene. So again, that's towards music composition, and I believe that is oh, uh, Suwano, yeah, Sawano, Sawano, and of course he's one of the the anime industry's top music composers. So it's very interesting that the music is so it's something inseparable from the episode. So anything that stands out uniquely, um, I can't really think of anything. It's just something that I know I would be aware of if it wasn't there. Same thing with Tower of God or Made in Abyss, anything by Kevin uh, Pinkkin. So it's in that same vein. Attack on Titan because that's a Sawano composition. So uh, along the lines of something that stands out, uh, nothing in particular. It's just a perfectly blended into the uh, action of the show. And uh, I I definitely agree with you on that one, that uh, it's a perfect uh, accompaniment. And if you didn't have one, then the other would suffer. But uh, in in my opinion, uh, I I really appreciated uh, the scene. Oh, my goodness. The scene when Char starts attacking on the Federation uh, spaceship. Oh my goodness, like that music, that setup, seeing him fly in that mobile suit, uh, it's bas- like the basically the Ferrari of all mobile suits in all of Gundam, bruh, it was just, uh, it just accompanied that scene so well, and it was, it, uh, it, it it showed his dignity, his power, and his calmness, and all the animation uh, that accompanied it too. It was just uh, that 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 was my scene for me with 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 the music and the way that it was done. It was just it, it's 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 like that meme with um, John Goodman's character from uh, The Emperor's New Groove. It's just so so right. So uh, just to begin to wrap things up a little bit. I wanted to uh, get your uh, opinion. You, you mentioned that you were uh, looking forward to uh, the way uh, that the uh, to to where some of the characters are going to go in some of the story. So is is it safe to say that uh, this episode is a proper a proper continuation of the story thus far? It was a good second episode, um, improving uh, the themes from the first one. Along the lines of what a OVA, a seven-episode OVA does, it's basically, again, continuing the perfect kind of setup, setup in from episode one. So, again, a good continuation for yeah. sure because, again, you're looking at a good controlled story, and it feels like it's going to uh, – the setup was really powerful. So along the lines of – essentially these are you know 50-minute-long episodes, so somewhat of a mini-movie per episode, and it yeah. definitely – has that vein of like these are story beats one beat one beat and then the payoff is going to be like the 90 minute long seventh episode and again this is from like the screenwriter that did uh, afro samurai so you kind of have that same mini series feel to it that it's just strong writing throughout yeah it's oh like you said um uh like it has that uh as you said that uh afro samurai feel like that that beat per beat that uh you know that what's coming it's written very well because of uh the setup and that's essentially what they're carrying you into 
is uh, they, they took the same amount of time and the effort in what they've done. And so it feels like what they're doing for you, it's not rushed, but it's uh, going at a fairly good pace. And it, it, it sort of gives you a bit of a relief that, you know, you have this good story, it's good writing, there's good character development, there's good character portrayal, and that hopefully you're not going to be given a season eight of Game of Thrones in the next episode. Like, you, you don't have a, a fear of that uh, coming in. So, uh, I, I know it, it's kind of a, a bad uh, question to start out with, but it's, it's something that I'm uh, thinking about asking you uh, moving forward to see uh, which episode do you prefer thus far uh, out of the episodes that you've seen. And I know we've only seen two, but, you know, just to start it off, though, uh, which do you prefer? Do you prefer the first episode or do you prefer the second episode in terms of uh, this OVA series? Yeah, so along the lines of it's easy to rank them again. They're not yeah. self-contained. Again, they're story beats, so we could mm -hmm. definitely rank them at the end after finishing up episode seven alongside the theme music. But oh, right yeah. now, uh, episode one is just again in my mind perfect so it's hard to kind of compete against that even though it's a strong second episode it's still yeah. a continuation versus the onset or the setup so i would say one is stronger than two i would, I would definitely agree with you there uh the as you said the first episode it was damn near perfect and uh this one was a good good sequel but if if i had to do a comparison I would still definitely go with the first one. So uh, that's all that I have on my end. Jay, do you have any uh, final thoughts that you would like to give on this episode? The only thing I want to comment on, because it kind of sticks in my mind about how Romeo yeah. and Juliet, this whole story is, is that funny enough, when the mobile suits do launch of the Londo Bell, their code names are Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> So I was like, oh, that's interesting that they're still going heavy-handed with certain um, parallels mm -hmm. to Shakespearean um, series or works. So I'm looking forward to seeing if that's continued throughout and where will it pop up again next time. No, no, that's, that's I, I, I didn't realize that. Like, it's, it's funny that, that, you, that you mentioned that now. Yeah, because like Romeo 1, Romeo 1, I don't think, was there a Juliet? so far but no it, it's funny that, that that you mentioned like they're using a lot of um uh european folklore uh motifs well i don't think romeo and juliet would be considered folklore but like i say that mainly because of uh the first episode uh the uh unicorn portrait that you mentioned and uh with what you mentioned too like the uh themes with uh romeo and juliet and how they're sort of uh teasing at that with uh Benager and audrey and they're even uh using that as call signs um uh for the mobile suits that launch out too so it's like they're not being subtle and not being subtle about it <laughs> again like that's 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 all we have today and uh, we appreciate you all uh, joining us on the ride. And so on to the next time, I'm just sitting up looking at my uh, Gunpla, just thinking to myself, this mobile suit stirs old memories within me.
Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to the Weebs on the Weekends podcast. We have been your part-time Weeb hosts, Jay Johnson and Sam Martinez. Have a beautiful weekend, and we will see you next time, our fellow Weebs.